The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Uh, This morning we're going to begin a study of the little book of 2 John. Now, if you can remember back when we were doing 1 John, I said that 1 John was written to several churches. It was what's called the circular letter. In other words, they passed it around and different churches read it. But 2 John is addressed to one local church and her leader. 2 John only has 245 Greek words, which makes it shorter than any other New Testament book, except for 3 John, which has 219 Greek words. Now, many think that the length of both 2nd and 3rd John is governed by the size of a single sheet of papyrus, which would have measured 25 by 20 centimeters. For us in America, that would be 8 by 10 inches. Okay, so you can get some reference there. Let's, let's start this morning by looking at authorship. Starting a new book. Who wrote this letter? Well, discussions of authorship of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John are intrinsically linked to the discussion of authorship of the fourth gospel. The vast majority of modern scholars recognize the similarity among the Johannian writings and believe that the Gospel of John and the letters of John have a common authorship. There are many similarities between them, especially in phrasing, uh, vocabulary, grammatical forms, and doctrine. According to church tradition, the Apostle John wrote the fourth gospel. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and also Revelation. All right, let's do something this morning. Let's forget tradition for a minute. We don't have too much trouble doing that, do we? And let's look at what the Scriptures say and see if we can determine who wrote the fourth gospel. This really is not difficult because we're told who wrote the the fourth gospel in the book itself. Uh, John 21.20 says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Yeshua loved following them the one who had leaned back against him during the supper, and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? So here the writer mentions the disciple whom Yeshua loved, and then he states that this is the disciple who wrote the letter in verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, the antecedent of this is the disciple whom Yeshua loved in verse 20. So, we know who wrote the gospel. It's the disciple whom Yeshua loved. And no one can argue that. But what the argument comes down to is, who is this? Does the Bible say anywhere that John the Apostle was the disciple whom Yeshua loved? No, it does not. The Bible explicitly names a person, though, who was loved by Yeshua, and it wasn't John the Apostle. There's only one man, listen, one man named in the New Testament that specifically is said to be loved by Yeshua. One person. Look at it. John 11, 1 and 2. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother 
Lazarus was ill. All right, twice we get that in this text, that Lazarus was ill. Now drop down to verse 3, and it says this. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So here Lazarus' sisters say that Yeshua loved their brother, Lazarus. He's ill. You love him. Uh, Verse 5 says this, Now Yeshua loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So here the inspired author says that Yeshua loved Lazarus. John 11, 36, The Jews said, See how he loved him. So here we have Lazarus' sister saying that Yeshua loved Lazarus. We have the inspired author saying Yeshua loved Lazarus. And the Jews said Yeshua loved Lazarus. And it just kind of seems to me that the Spirit of God is going through great lengths in John 11 to make known that Yeshua loved Lazarus. And people, I'll say it again, Lazarus is the only man named in the Bible that is specifically identified as being loved by Yeshua. Therefore, it's my conclusion that this disciple whom Yeshua loved is Lazarus, and it is Lazarus that wrote the Gospel of John 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. So, why are these books attributed to the Apostle John? Well, Lazarus is the Greek rendering of the name Eleazar. And Willis Barnstone writes this. In the letter that Clement wrote to Theodore, he stated that there was more testimony attached to Mark than was presently available. Within this original gospel was the discussion of the young man, John Eleazar, Eleazar being the Hebrew of the Greek word Lazarus, who after Jesus raised him from the tomb, so then we know who this John Eleazar is, he's someone the Lord raised from the tomb, went to the Garden of Gethsemane clothed in a fine white linen garment over his naked body. Now, I realize that this is history, it's not inspired But it's interesting. And what it tells me is that it means that Lazarus, whom Yeshua raised from the dead, was also known as John Eleazar. And I believe that John Eleazar, a.k.a. Lazarus, is the author of the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Now, here's what I need you to understand, though. This is a hermeneutical issue, not an inspirational issue. In reality, the author of the Bible is the Spirit of God. Okay, so we know that, and hopefully we're all in agreement that whoever this author is, the Spirit of God is authoring this book. I just believe it was Lazarus. Now, if you want more discussion on that, go back to the Gospel and read the introduction that I did to the Gospel of John. I spent the whole time just talking about authorship and trying to defend the fact that it was Lazarus who did that. All right, now that we know who wrote the letter, at least now you know who I think wrote the letter, Okay, let's talk about why he wrote it, all right? Lazarus probably wrote the letter of 2 John to a local church as a brief follow-up to his first letter. He repeats many of the same ideas and addresses some of the same problems. Apparently, the false teachers were traveling around trying to come into churches under the guise of godly teachers who could take you further in your Christian faith. But they denied the essential truth about Yeshua. Look at verse 9. He says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. But whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. 
So John is writing this short letter before he could make a personal visit to warn the church about receiving these teachers into their fellowship. What we need to understand is that in the first century, there's a widespread ministry of itinerant teachers and preachers. So in the early church, there were many who were traveling around, preaching the gospel, teaching the word of God in an itinerant manner. This posed a problem of accommodation. Where do these people stay? They're, they're far from their home. They're out traveling around. They're preaching the gospel. Where do they stay? When night came and they finally finished their house-to-house ministry, where do they go? You say, well, they just check into the lo- local Holiday Inn, right? Well, we know from historical sources that inns during the first century tended to be little more than brothels. That's a nice way of saying whorehouses, all right, prostitution houses. They were brothels. The rabbis in the Mishnah, which is a Jewish oral law and tradition, placed innkeepers on the lowest scale of human degradation because they were brothels. Plato actually labeled innkeepers as pirates. He says they were the lowest of the low. So the itinerant preachers wouldn't feel too comfortable going to spend the night at a whorehouse. That wouldn't look too good for their reputation either. Um, They weren't comfortable in those places. So the traveling preachers would receive hospitality and food and sometimes money from the Christian home. So as they travel around, that was just, that was the day, people. Hospitality was huge to them, and so they would stay with other Christians. So right away you can see how obvious it could be that the custom would be abused by false teachers. You know, they show up and you're giving them hospitality. Well, they're there to teach you some false doctrine. And John's having a problem with this. Now, the Didache, which is a second century book of church order. It's one of the earliest fragments that we have. It lays down strict rules concerning itinerant preachers and teachers. So they had rules in the early church, okay? Here's what we expect of these people. Here's what they got to do. It's like an early code of conduct, guidelines for both churches And ministers are the word to follow. Maybe we should resurrect some of these things, okay? The Didache clearly states that these individuals were only to stay one or two nights in a household. And if they were to stay any longer, or if they asked for money, or anything over and above the normal lodging and food, that they were to be recognized as false teachers. He's telling them, don't let these people take advantage of you. That's what the Didache is laid out for. The Didache states this. They are to be viewed as a Christmonger. Someone who is seeking to live off the reputation of the gospel and the Lord Yeshua for false gain. So there's the guidelines here for this. Now you can see how serious the early church considered false teaching and false teachers. He's warning them about it. You've got to be careful. They're traveling around. They want to teach. Look at verse 10 of 2 John. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Now listen, this goes against the culture and tradition of the day. You want to bring in your hospitality. You want to bring these people in. You want to take care of them. And he says, if they're teaching false doctrine, don't do it. He's warning his readers of the missionary efforts of the secessionist false teachers and the dangers of welcoming in whenever they should arrive. Nothing, people, nothing threatens the church like false doctrine. 
Now, these strong warnings against bringing false teachers into their homes are necessary because the Jews had a list of six, six things to commend a man in the life to come. What's number one on the list? I already gave you several hints. Hospitality. Hospitality. That's number one on the list of their things that, you know, you want to be commended in the life to come. You got to be. A, this is part of their culture. This was huge in their culture. It seems almost strange to us, but it was huge. Hospitality literally means loving strangers, people you don't know. Now, we don't usually think of hospitality as one of the top ten commands, but the Jews saw it as number one. Let me just show you how important hospitality was to people in that culture. Look at Genesis 19.8. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. In other words, they're virgins. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. You know the context here? Everybody know the context? Okay. Lot had met two angels in the gate. Didn't know they were angels. And he invited them into his house because that's what they did. Hey, they don't know these people. You're strangers, but you don't have a place to live? Oh, come on. Come into my house. I'll take care of you. That's just their hospitality. All right, so the homosexual men had surrounded Lot's house demanding that he send out these two men that were staying with them. Well, Lot goes outside, he closes the door, and he hopes to defuse the situation. He pleaded with them, please don't act so wickedly. And he offers to surrender his two daughters to the appetites of these depraved degenerates. What kind of father would do something like this? I would show them the other end of my 12-gauge, okay? But uh, send your daughters out there? And he says, here's my daughters. Do to them as you please. I know that seems really strange to us because we don't understand the culture and, you know, most of us would never ask a stranger to come into our house. And, you know, we might want to write this off as the action of a lousy father, right? But we see a very similar incident in the book of Judges. Now, in Judges, a bunch of wicked men come to the man's house and demand that he bring his visitor out to them. That They say, that we may know him. And by that, they, you know, they mean they want to have sexual relations with this visitor, you know, shows up. Judges 19, 23 and 24. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Now, I want to remind you again, this man is a man he met in the gate, and he invited him in. He doesn't know this man, he's never met him before, but he's brought him into his house. Okay? This man has come into my house, and because he's under his roof, he's obligated to take care of him. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them, and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not this outrageous thing. 
Now, in both these stories, we have men offering their daughters to a homosexual crowd in order to protect a guest in their home. Why? What would possess these fathers to do such an unspeakable thing? Hospitality. Again, this whole culture was so big on hospitality. You come under their roof, they're obligated to take care of you. The crowds demand that Lot and the old man turn over their guests. But to Lot and to this man, this would be an unthinkable violation of the protection guarantee of one who comes under the roof of your house. It would be a violation of hospitality. Now these are bizarre incidents, but they show us the importance that the Jews placed, not only the Jews, but the Arabs, this culture placed on hospitality. Now, in case you're thinking this is a crazy, outdated practice, let me share with you something that might seem very strange to you. This is from David Instone Brewer's book, Divorce and Remarriage in the Bible. In that book, he talks about the Muslim custom of matah. Anybody know what that Muslim custom is? Matah. It means pleasure marriage. So, in Islamic law, there's a thing called pleasure marriage, matah, matah marriage. You can search this out, you know, do a web search, don't use Google. Uh, look it up, matah marriage in the Shiite law. What it means is this, you can marry someone just for a short period, okay? You can enter in a marriage agreement with a girl or a woman for a few nights, and then you can end it, okay? Boom, I'm done. It's just temporary, This is something they literally inherited, and it is still practiced today. It's still part of Islamic law. Brewer said it was part of the culture and probably part of the hospitality culture. All right, so here's how it works. You got a friend, someone comes to the house, stranger, whoever, he comes to your house, you're taking care of him, you give him food, you give him whatever, you want to just take care of him well. He hasn't had sex for a while, so hey, i got to help this guy out. So i got a wife, so I'll, what I do is I write my wife a bill of divorcement. Okay, Then we have a short marriage ceremony, and she marries this guest in my house, and then he spends a night or a couple nights with her, and when he goes to leave, he writes her a bill of divorcement. She comes back, and I remarry her. That's happening in the culture. Okay, It's all legal. Now, they didn't used to have all that marriage and divorce stuff until Islamic law got involved in it. And they said, well, you can't just give people away and not have a marriage. You've got to make it legal. So that's how they do it. Okay, so part of hospitality culture here. Have my wife for a couple nights. You know, when, you're, when you leave, give her back. Okay? You can just imagine how, how that worked out. But like I said, Islam, you know, they put the rules on it so it would be legal. Understanding the importance of hospitality and what this culture, what goes on in this culture and how they feel, I think helps us understand why Lazarus stresses that they don't welcome false teachers into their home. They're prone to do this. They're prone to welcome and give them all the benefits they can, maybe even their wife. So he's like, listen, these people come with this teaching. Don't, Don't bring them. Don't let them into your house. Dr. Colin G. Krauss writes this. This brief letter was written primarily to warn the readers about certain itinerant deceivers and of the dire consequences of welcoming such people and thereby sharing in their wicked work. That's important. 
Because John's going to warn them, you share in this wicked teaching if you, you know, bring them in. He says it has a secondary and related purpose of reminding the readers of the command to love one another, which they received at the beginning. And so ensuring that both writer and readers persist in their relationship of mutual love. In this way, the writer seeks to make sure that the deceivers do not succeed in alienating the readers from fellowship with him. So now that we know who wrote it, and we know why he wrote it, there's these traveling teachers out there trying to corrupt the churches, saying they have this superior knowledge. Let's look at the text itself. The elder, now don't worry because we're only doing one verse today. Now when I started this, it was, I was going to do six verses. And then it, it got cut down to three and then it got cut down to one. So at this rate, we'll finish this little book in 13 weeks. Now, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll probably pick up speed, but we're only going to deal with one verse today. Probably. <laughs> the elder to the elect lady and the children, who I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth. Now, the elder. Let me ask you a question here. If this is written by the Apostle John, why didn't John say the Apostle to the elect lady? I mean, Paul constantly did that, right? Look at Paul in Ephesians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Yeshua. So, you know, I'm, I'm an apostle. So, that's a good way if you're writing a letter to somebody, start out with your authority. Hey, you better listen because I'm an apostle, all right? Why didn't he do that? Paul constantly used this. Paul called himself an apostle when he wrote to the Romans, the Corinthians, the Galatians, Colossians, Timothy, and Titus. Peter also calls himself an apostle. In 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Yeshua the Christ. So why wouldn't John call himself an apostle? I think, and this is a wild speculation, but hang on. I think it's maybe because he wasn't one. Yeah, so he didn't say John an apostle. Instead, he says, John the elder. Now, the Greek for elder here is presbuteros. It's used here in 3 John to identify the authors. Elder has a wide variety of meaning in the Bible. It sometimes uh, is suggested that this title is used because he's old. It's an old man, so he's saying, I'm just the elder. Or it's used as, uh, for respect or authority. But if he wants respect or authority and he's an apostle, he would just say, uh, I'm an apostle. Okay? And <clears throat> the term was used, elder was used in the officials of the Jewish synagogue in the first century. We see that in Mark 15.1 and Acts 16.12. Uh, describe a, a group of elders within the Sanhedrin. Elders as rulers of the community appear in the Tanakh in Deuteronomy 19.12. Outside of Jewish background of Christianity, the term was also used in the Hellenistic world of both Asia Minor and Egypt as a title for magistrates. So it had a wide usage. Here and in 3 John are the only times in the New Testament that the word elder appears in the singular. Now this is important, people. It's important because churches always had a plurality of elders. Only here do you see it in the singular because it's one man referring to himself. The term elder, the term overseer or bishop, and the term pastor or shepherd are used interchangeably in the New Testament to refer to church leaders. Now, pastor's only used once in the New Testament, but that's the title everybody picks out. Okay, he's the pastor. Why don't we use the term elders? It's more biblical. I think it's because it makes us sound like Mormons. So we're going to talk to elder so-and-so. You know, it just, 
I don't know, sounds kind of cultish maybe, but anyway, that's the biblical term. But here's the important thing. Church leadership is a team effort. It's not the sole responsibility of one man, biblically. Or it's not the joint responsibility of everyone, okay? It's not pastor rule, it's not congregation rule. The norm in the New Testament is plurality of elders, There's no reference in all the New Testament of a one-pastor congregation. Why is that? Because human leaders, even Christian ones, are sinful, and they only accomplish God's will imperfectly. And multiple leaders, therefore, serve as a check and balance on each other. And they safeguard against the very human tendency to play God over other people. Within a plurality of leaders, extreme ideas are tempered, harsh judgments are moderated, and doctrinal imbalances are corrected. I believe the New Testament pattern is that the church be led by a plurality of men. Now, you don't see this much today. you got one guy ruling, and he does whatever he wants, and it's, it, there's, the real problem here is there's no accountability. Okay? There's just no accountability. And again, you know, and, and the further up he gets... In popularity and in finances, the more dangerous things get, okay? So John is most likely at this time, he's in Ephesus. That's kind of the sort of mother church for the churches in Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey. There are other elders there at Ephesus. We know this from the 20th chapter of Acts where Paul calls the elders from Ephesus to come to Miletus so he can talk to them. All right, now this letter, so the elder here, again, broad term, I think he's just saying, you know, I'm one of the church leaders. And uh, he addressed this letter to the elect lady and her children. Who is this? Well, if you're of the belief that you should interpret the Bible literally, then you may think this refers to some Christian lady and her children. And many people take it that way. There's been a lot of discussion about this title. Many have tried to assert that this uh, was written to a lady named Eklekta. Where'd they get that from? Well, eklektos is the word for chosen here or elect here. All right? So it says, calls her elect lady. So electa, yeah, this he's written to a lady named electa. Well, the big problem with that is that it doesn't seem very likely since John also called this lady's sister electa in verse 13. The children of your elect sister greet you. So unless their parent is George Foreman, I doubt that both sisters have the same name, okay? Now, others see this addressed to a lady named Korea. Well, how'd they get that one? Well, Korea is the Greek word for lady. But that seems unlikely, since the plural address in John is used in verse 6, 8, 10, and 12. I think the better explanation is that John personified a particular local church as a lady and the Christians as her children. And I think there's, we could find all kinds of reasons why that could be true. For example, the Greek term for church is feminine. So he's referring to the church as a lady. In the Septuagint, elect refers to a body of people. So it's not a single person you're talking about. You're talking about a body of people. The imagery of a church as a chosen lady, I think, fits with the church as the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5, Revelation 19. And this church has a sister that seems to refer to another local church in verse 13. 
John sends greetings from the children of the elect sister. It would almost seem like this is a sister church whose members are greeting the members of this particular church that John's writing to. Now, in the Tanakh and the Apocrypha, Israel is referred to as a wife, a bride, a mother, a daughter, indicating that there would have been some precedent for a Christian community to be addressed in singular terms. In 1 Peter 5.13, the church in Rome is described as she who is in Babylon, indicating the New Testament Christians could speak of the Christian community as a woman. So what I think is going on here, I see this as a cryptic reference to the local church and its members. The church, your elect sister, then would be the members of another local church. And the letter was written during, if this letter was written during time of persecution, which is a real possibility, then referring to it in a cryptic manner would provide some protection if the letter fell into the wrong hands. I mean, oh, they, they just think it's a letter some guy's writing to some lady and her children. And they wouldn't understand it. But it'd be quite clear to the people who are receiving it. By the outsider would be a little confused. So I, I think that's what's going on here. He's being a little cryptic here. Now, I said a little earlier that if you're of the belief that you should interpret the Bible literally, you may think of this some Christian lady or children. Now, you may be thinking, aren't we supposed to take the Bible literally? Some of you are probably, probably familiar with the phrase that is used to guide biblical interpretation that goes like this. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. You ever heard that? Yeah, well, it's, it's pretty common, okay? If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. So you read this, the elder to the elect lady. Okay, it's written by an elder to a lady. Plain sense makes sense. That's what you lady. That's it. We'll just stop there. You know, first of all, that's not really good advice, okay? Because we need to be careful not to impose our ideas on a text, even if it seems to make sense to us. We need to understand that the Bible contains a lot of different genres, all right? We got historical narrative. We have didactic literature. We have wisdom literature. We have prophetic literature. We have apocalyptic literature and poetry. And on top of that, there is metaphor, word pictures, hyperbole, humor, sarcasm, and other rhetorical devices used throughout the Bible. So when interpreting Scripture, it seems like it's a default position, because we've been trained this way, to go to the literal. Go to the literal. What's what's that literally mean? Well, we, we don't do that in our daily lives, in our daily conversation. And linguistic researchers have determined that if a metaphorical meaning is available and makes sense, that's what people default to. So people actually default to metaphor before they default to the literal. If you think about this for a while, you'll understand. I mean, how often do we use metaphor? And you know, when someone says to you, no, I literally, I literally, why are you saying literally? Because every time else it's a metaphor, you know? Man, I almost died when this happened. No, you didn't even come close to dying, okay? It's a metaphor, you're, you're, and we use it so much in speech. Try to take metaphor out of speech and see where you end up. So it's not always a great idea to take the Bible literally, okay? We've got to understand what kind of genre it is, what kind of speech is going on, and find out how it's being used. So don't always try to force the Bible into a literal meaning. 
And there are times it is literal, okay? I'm just saying, you got to be careful. So I think 2 John is being written to warn a sister congregation some distance away of the missionary efforts of the cessationist false teachers and the dangers of welcoming them whenever they should arrive. Now, since John's arena of ministry was Asia Minor, the probability of this being a church in that Roman province is good. Findlay, a commentator, he argued for the church in Pergamum being the chosen lady and the church of Ephesus being her chosen sister. Those may be good guesses, but we don't know who these churches are, okay? So I, I just think anything's a guess. Your guess would be as good as anybody else's. All right, so let's talk about John calling the church elect. Both in verse 1 and 13, he uses the adjective elect to refer to these two churches. What does election mean? I think you'd get different answers if you asked different people that. Um, Wayne Grudem, in his theological commentary, I, I think does a great job. He says this, election is an act of God before creation. Think about that. Okay, God's doing this before the world existed, all right? In which he chooses some people to be saved. How can you choose people when no people exist? Well, God knows who's going to exist, okay? He knows everything. Not on account of any foreseen merit in them. Because there's people who say, well, God looks into the future, and he sees that you're going to believe, so he chooses you. So, okay, who's choosing who then, all right? Not because of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. That, Grudem did a great job there. That is a good definition of election. Now, what most of the churches don't understand today, but what the Bible teaches is that the initiative in salvation lies with God's sovereign choice. When you choose to believe in Yeshua, it's because God has chosen you. And He's giving you the faith to believe. Now, many in churchianity, and even many believers, don't like the biblical truth that God sovereignly chooses who will be saved. They just don't like that. Who does he think he is? God. And if you understand God, then you shouldn't have to ask who does he think he is. He's God, okay? But to them, the decision of salvation is totally up to man and his free will. This is the dominant view in the church today. And in this view, God's hands are tied to actually save anyone. Why? Because he can't override man's free will. This people, listen, is a humanistic doctrine that elevates man over God. We're in charge. We'll make the decisions. God, you live with it. Okay? The doctrine of election, the doctrine of divine sovereign choosing has been so suppressed, so repressed, it has received so much bad press that we're reluctant to even speak of it. As if just the use of it demands some kind of long and convoluted apology or explanation because it's hard for people to swallow. They just can't handle that, you know? And while the truth of election may offend some Christians with a weak view of God's sovereignty, it never offended the New Testament writers and it never offended the Holy Spirit who inspired them to write. It's unmistakable in the New Testament that believers are elect, okay? Ephesians 1.4, even as He chose us in Him, look, before the foundation of the world. Maybe that's where Grudem got that from. 
Before the foundation of the world, He chose us. Now, He chose us. This is an heiress middle of ek lego. And it means to choose or pick out. And it's in the middle voice, and it's reflective, which means God is picking for Himself, and nobody else is involved in this. Okay? I know that's hard for the church today. 1 Thessalonians 1.4 For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. All by Himself. First Titus 1.1 says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Yeshua the Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. 1 Peter 1.1 Peter, an apostle of Yeshua the Christ, to those who are elect. Jude 1 once, Jude, a servant of Yeshua the Christ and brother of James, to those who are called. Called here is the same idea. They're elect. They're called out ones. Now, within evangelical churches today, there's an ongoing debate on this issue of salvation. Is it by choice of man's free will or is it by God's sovereign choice? I'm at the dentist's office. I'm laying in the chair. He's starting to work on me. He goes, I got a question for you. Calvinism or Arminianism? And I'm like, get them tools out of my mouth because I, <laughs> I got something to tell you. Well, and then he follows it up by, my pastor thinks it's a combination of both. And so, boy, when he pulled those tools out for a second, we had a, like a 10-minute break where I unloaded on him scripture after scripture after scripture. You know, and he's just, he's like, okay, okay, I'm sorry I asked, you know. <laughs> but Peter, Paul, Jude, They make it absolutely clear. This is God's choice. He chose us. Why does that bother people so much? The gospel, people, is the good news about what God has done for His people. It's the good news about Yeshua, the Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, that salvation is a gift to His people from beginning to end. The new birth roots in the resolute will of God as the motivating force which gives new life. People, salvation is a work of God. Man has no part in the miracle of the new birth and cannot have. Amen. This is why we call the, it's the doctrine of sovereign election. God just chooses. It's hard for man to accept. It's hard for man to acknowledge that his salvation is an act of God because we want to assume some responsibility, even if it's a small part, of having believed. Well, I was smart enough to believe You believe because God gave you life and gave you faith to believe. But man wants some credit for having made the right choice. The doctrine of election is repulsive to many because our standards, by our standards, it seems unfair that God should, out of all the human beings, choose some at his own discretion to be saved and not the rest. How dare he? We make choices. And we're not God. He makes a choice because He is God. Amen. That's, that's the thing, you know. People that you want to know what's amazing about election, the amazing thing is that God chose anybody. Okay? And you know He didn't choose us based on us. That's simple, okay? <laughs> well, why does John emphasize God's choice both at the start and the close of this letter? He brings up the election at the beginning and the end. I believe it's because of the reality that God chose us to be His children, that gives comfort to people when they're under attack or going through trials. Because 
wait a minute, I'm His choice. He chose me. I'm His. I'm His child. And this trial, this trouble that I'm going through, I can have confidence that the sovereign God of the universe who controls all things and loves me and chose me, it's okay. I'll get through it. So I think He's reminding them just to tell them, you guys, it's okay. It's going to get difficult, but it's okay. Then He says this to the congregation, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. Now, what's surprising here is that whom, the word there, whom, it's a masculine pearl, plural pronoun, because it's meant to link up, the reason that's surprising is because it's meant to link up with lady, which is feminine, or children, which is neuter. But I think John does this as a way of marking the phrase as symbolic. You know, you're like, this doesn't make sense, John, linguistically. Well, he goes, uh, well, this lady's not really a lady. It's a church. Now, we see here that John is obviously concerned about the truth. Five times in four verses, you have the Greek word aletheia, meaning truth. Now, people argue about what truth is he talking about? Who is he talking about here? Well, some say he's talking about the word. Well, who's the word? Yeshua is the word, okay? Some say he's talking about the spirit. Well, you can argue all those things if you want. It's, you know, it's not, I think, that significant. But I think the predominant view is the Holy Spirit or it's Christ he's talking about. He could be referring to the Holy Spirit because John 14, 17 called the spirit of truth. He's called the spirit of truth primarily because he communicates truth. John may be referring, and I think this is probably the best, he's referring to Yeshua here. All right, and we could look. We could look at it that way. Just look at the verse one, one there, John, whom I love in Yeshua, and not only I, but all also who know Yeshua. All right, there's this community of people, and the the connection is they know Yeshua. Well, in John fourteen, we have this statement by Yeshua: "I'm the way, the truth, and the life." Now, commenting on this, Hall Harris writes this, and it's a good comment here. He says, however, the context suggests that the three ideas are not strictly coordinate. The next statement, no one comes to the Father except through me, seems to relate primarily to the first predicate, I am the way. Thus, we suggest that the two remaining predicates, the truth and the life, are ex-epigetical of explanatory to the first. I am the way, that is, the truth and the life. All right? So Yeshua is the way to God because He is the truth from God and He is the life from God. He is the truth because He embodies God's supreme revelation. He's the way to the Father, only way to the Father. The way to the truth about the Father is through Yeshua. The way to the life of God is through Yeshua. For John, the concept of truth centers on the person of Christ. Now, the heretics were deceiving people about the person of Christ. We see in verse 7, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Yeshua the Christ in the flesh. Such one is a deceiver and their antichrist. So these false teachers were either saying that Christ didn't have a human body, he wasn't a real man, or that he was a real man and the Christ spirit just came upon him in his baptism and left before the crucifixion. That's what they're teaching. So, The church is a community of those who have come to know the truth. And every church needs to be strong in the knowledge of truth so that the members can avoid destructive heresies. How does a church become strong in the knowledge of truth? 
Let me ask it this way. What is the purpose of the local church? What's our purpose? Do we have one? To what? Build up? To know God? Do what? Thank you. Thank you. The purpose of the church is to hold up, proclaim, teach the Word of God. Look at uh, what Paul said to Timothy. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon. Oh, i got to pause there for a minute. <laughs> just a brief moment here, but I can't just skip over this. Soon here is the Greek word tahu, which means shortly, without delay, soon. Now listen, here's what you got to understand. This is the same word that the Lord uses of His second coming. Do you think that Timothy is still waiting for Paul to arrive today? You don't think so? Why not? How come we read this and we get that? Oh, soon. Oh, they're dead now. But when Christ says it, it's like, oh, that means thousands of years away. Why do we take the same word when used to, when applied to Christ? It's just like he used this same exact word of his soon arrival because he was coming soon. Let me go on here. Okay. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, I want to come soon, but I might delay. Christ won't delay, but I might delay. You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. I want you to know how to behave when you get together, all right? And then he says this, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Now notice what Paul calls the church here. He says it's a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now, in Ephesus, to which these letters were written, the word pillar would have had a special significance because the greatest glory of Ephesus was the temple of Diana, or Artemis. When Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver little silver statues of Diana, he got the people stirred up. Notice what they cried out. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis, or Diana, of the Ephesians. The temple of Diana, or Artemis, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. One of the features of this temple was its pillars. It had 127 pillars around there, every one of them the gift of a king. They were all made of marble, some were studded with jewels and overlaid with gold. So it may be that the idea of the word pillar here is not so much a support, I think that's the idea of buttress, but pillar here is the idea of display. And the idea is the church's mission. Write this down, because some of you obviously didn't understand this. The church's mission is to uphold the truth of God for all to see. That's our calling. The church is to support and display the truth of God. We are not the source of truth. The Bible is. But we are to support and display it. The Bible is God's Word, and the church is to support and display that truth. And Timothy was to do this through preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 4, 11-13. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. Now look what he says here. Timothy... You're leading that church there. I want you to set an example in speech, things you say, 
in conduct, the way you live, in love, in faith, and in purity. So church leaders are to be examples in these areas. Why? Because this is what God wants from all His people. So the leaders are to set the standard, churches to follow. Elders are to be a godly example. Now, last week Christianity Today put out an article on Ravi Zacharias. I heard of him, but I never knew anything about him. Some of the guys today were saying that they followed. He was a great apologist. Wasn't a very good Christian, but he was a great apologist. He's world-famous Christian apologist. got a large ministry, written over 30 books, ministries around the country. Zacharias actually died last year, but it's now coming out that he was involved in sexual misconduct. Several people are coming forward. They found all kinds of pictures, found all kinds of evidence. The article in Christianity Today said, One woman told the investigators that after he arranged for the ministry to provide her with financial support, the, the ministry, his, you're donating to this man and he's using the money for sexual sin, okay? After the ministry to provide financial support, he required sex from her. She called it rape. He had a bunch of massage parlors that he owned, co-owned, I guess, and he was constantly there, and the reason he was there, he said he had a bad back, he had back problems, so that was his excuse to always be in a massage parlor, and he just wasn't getting massages there, if you know what I'm talking about. The article goes on to say this. This lady said, Zacharias made her pray with him to thank God for the opportunity they had received. In other words... He is committing adultery, and then he's taking his victim and said, you pray with me, let's just thank God we got to commit adultery together. To me, this is sicker than what he was doing. Can you imagine? You're taking his victim and said, let's pray together. It goes on. And as with other victims, called her his reward. Why? For living a life of service to God. People, I want to throw up. This is sickening. Pray with me. You're my reward. The way God rewards faithful service today is giving you a partner to commit adultery with. Not just adultery, rape. Yeah, I, I just, I, people, I can't even fathom this. All right? It's bad enough. He's committing all this sexual sin, but then forcing his victims, let's pray and thank God for we had this opportunity. What God was this man serving? And I don't understand for the life of me why God didn't strike this man dead a lot sooner. I don't get it. I don't get it. But listen, these women who he was raping, sexually abusing, were his reward from God for faithful service. Oh, my word, people. The damage that Christians do to the church. It's just amazing. Now, the article said this. Zacharias warned the woman, it says a fellow believer. So, you know, he's getting Christian women to be involved in this. He warned her, a fellow believer, if she ever spoke out against him, she would be responsible for millions of souls lost when his reputation was damaged. Piling on the guilt... 
Millions of souls will be lost if you tell anybody that I'm raping you. So, so keep the rape a secret so a lot of people can get saved. I know this is the sickest theology I could ever even understand. I read this article. I just could not even believe it, people. But listen, this is the result of no accountability. And that's what they said in the article. People from the ministry were apologizing because they, this man had no accountability. And again, this is what happens. When you get a lot of money and a lot of fame, you think you're somebody. And then you think you deserve whatever you want. And you start taking advantage of people. Listen, he's supposed to be shepherding the flock of God, and he is fleecing and raping the flock. And people excuse this. Oh, he was this is the man. Yeah, he was a corrupt, evil man who said he was a shepherd of God. How do we excuse this behavior? Oh, yeah, he was a man. He just, you know, what do you expect from men? Well, you better expect more from that from Christian men. Richard Baxter, one of the Puritans, wrote the book called The Reformed Pastor. One of the most profound things he said in the book was this. An unholy pastor is like a stained glass window. He's just a religious figure that keeps the light out. I tried all ways to get a color that would show up better on that. That white was the best, and it looked better on my computer than it does here, but you get the point. An unholy pastor is like a stained glass window. He's just a religious figure that keeps the light out. And this man kept the light out of a lot of people's lives. And as was said earlier, they they say he was a good apologist. He was a lousy Christian. And can you imagine the damage now from the people who followed that ministry and, and lifted him up and you know thought this was a great man of God? All right, so let me get back to Paul and Timothy here. He tells Timothy, set the believers an example. This is church leadership. This is what church leadership is to do in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And then he says, until I come, so he plans on coming, Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Timothy, here's what you're supposed to do. Teach the Word. Preach the Word. Exhort people using the Word of God. Teach them what the Bible says. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Yeshua, who is to judge the living and the dead. Oh, let me stop for a second again. In the Greek, this is who is about to judge. Melo is here in the Greek. So Paul in the first century is saying that Christ is about to judge the living and the dead at His appearing. That's the second coming. He's about to do it in His kingdom. Then he says this, Preach the Word. This is Timothy. This is what you're supposed to do. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. People, I do not believe the church's mission has changed. We are to be a pillar supporter of the truth. This is done through faithfully expounding the truth of God's Word. This is the mission of every local church. But I believe that most churches have totally forsaken this. The Bible is not forefront in most churches today. In his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman writes, Toward the end of the 19th century, the age of exposition began to pass. 
And the early signs of its replacement could be discerned. Its replacement was to be the age of show business. Postman was right on with his assessment. And in this age of show business, truth is irrelevant. What really matters is whether we are entertained. Substance counts for little. Style is everything. I'm afraid that the church has forsaken its calling. It's no longer the pillar and ground of truth. It's become a source of entertainment. Because we want to get people in. The church today, the primary focus and purpose of the church today is to gather large crowds. That's their number one goal. How many people can we get in here? According to them, I'm a miserable failure. I mean, really. You know, how many people do you have Sunday? Uh, that's, when I was a Baptist, that's the number one question you got from any other preacher. How many do you all have Sunday? Because they counted, believe me. And you know what? They used to <laughs> I love the buzz phrase. We count people because people count. No, you count people because you're a big head and you think the more people you have, the more important you are, all right? The first act of the newly constructed church was to expound the Word of God. Paul told Timothy, preach the word to the church. This calling hasn't changed. This is our mission. This is our calling as a local assembly. We're to hold up the word of God. We're not to put on plays. We're not to give three points in a poem or some topical series based on the latest popular TV show. We're to expound the word of the living God and may God grant us the strength to continue to do that. I, th- I believe I shared this with you before, but one day I was at the car lot and uh, talking to one of the salesmen. He was telling me about what happened at his church on Sunday. And the guy that owned the lot was sitting there at the desk and he heard it and he goes, hey, that's what my pastor preached on Sunday. Different churches, different parts of the city. And he said, well, my pastor said, hey, my pastor said that too. And I'm just sitting there smiling and they, and they look at me like, what's going on? I'm like, you guys don't get it, do you? And I said, what? They got a canned message, okay? They order these messages. They come to them. Boom, here it is. Got the illustrations. You got one scripture verse maybe. And you got all this stuff and they just do the same thing. And they're like, they were blown away by that. They had no clue. Had they not talked, they might have gone on being deceived. But that's typical. You order, here's a 10-week series on such and such. Okay? It's great for the pastor because, you know, you got plenty of time then during the week to do what you want to do, I guess, you know? Let me brush up on this before I preach it, all right? Uh, So the church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth. It's to proclaim the truth. And the people who come there are to come there to receive the truth that's revealed through the Word of God. Only then will we know what it is God wants us to know as we see it revealed through the truth of Scripture. Put it another way, the church has the stewardship of the Scriptures. That is our stewardship. The Word of God. To teach it, to proclaim it. Listen, people, there is nothing as important as divine truth. Nothing. It's by divine truth that we come to know Yahweh. It's by divine truth that we come to know Christ and the Holy Spirit, that we come to know about salvation. The church today has such a deficiency in discernment because it's so doctrinally ignorant. It lacks the ability to sort out truth from error. If we are to oppose false teachers and false doctrine as John is exhorting his readers, you got to know the truth. It starts there. And that's why people don't know today. They, they have all kinds of crazy views. Where'd you get that from? My pastor said, or I heard some speaker say, where's that in the Bible? They don't know. 
How do you learn the truth? You learn it by carefully studying the Word of God. Now, that's a problem because nobody's doing that. All right? And it saddens me that the Christian's personal Bible study is almost extinct today. We got too many other things. We got video games and TV shows and Facebook, all this. We don't have time for the Word of God. So, who actually reads their Bible today? Who actually studies the Bible? I heard some statistics for our nation that said 11% of Christians read their Bible every day. I find that hard to believe. I really do. Okay? 40 to 50% of Americans claim to be Christians, but 11% claim to read their Bible. And I, like I said, I find that number hard, high because I talk to people, okay? <laughs> so, but in our current culture, it seems like everyone who takes a stand for God's Word You know, if you stand up and say, well, the Bible says this, you're going to be slandered for being unloving. Well, don't say that. You say something's a sin. They're like, well, you shouldn't say that. That's what the Bible says. It's not my job to make up other things. It's just tell you, here's what the Bible says. Take it up with God. In this age, people want to say, well, don't get too much into doctrine because doctrine divides. You've got to beware of anybody who tells you not to preach or listen to doctrine. We need to realize that doctrine concerning Christ is everything, and if we don't have that right, we're lost. Doctrine is simply teaching, and it's teaching what the Bible says. Truth matters, people. It matters, and it mattered to John. That's why he hit it so hard here. You know, these false teachers are coming in. I want you to know the truth, so when they come in, you're like, that's a lie. That's the only way you can do that. Truth matters, and people, the only way we'll find the truth of God is through His Word. Christians, we're to read it, and the church is to teach it. And that combination should put us on strong ground for knowing what the Bible says and teaches. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the truth of your word, Lord. I thank you for the freedom that we have here in this country so far to proclaim it openly and freely. Father, I pray that you would guide and protect us, Lord, and if we hear it ever, ever quit teaching the truth of God's word, I pray you'd shut us down. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. We pray you would continue to use this ministry. I pray you'd give each and every one of us a heart, Lord, just to know the truth, to be able to stand against falsehood because we know the truth. And Lord, I pray, pray for you to give each and every one of us who love you accountability. That we would help each other to walk the Christian life faithfully, carefully, holy. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Don't you love those feel-good messages? Okay, I got a question here. It says... How do we know it is true about Ravi Zacharias? Well, that's a good question. It really is because, I mean, you can't believe much anything you hear, but this is coming from several sources, and his ministry itself was quoted in this article that I read from Christianity Today. People from his ministry were saying, you know, one of the guys especially was stepping up saying, I take responsibility because we did not hold him accountable. They knew about it. They kind of, you know, uh, let's just look the other way. Well, you know, that's the thing. You know, the massage, how many preachers do you know own massage parlors? You know, uh, 
But again, it was a cover for him, you know, and the church financed a lot of this stuff. So how do I know the truth? I know because I read and, you know, I, I think this was a trusted source. It showed people, you know, from his ministry responding to this and how they're going to deal with it now and stuff. So unless it was a total lie, which, you know, then I hope they would be sued by the ministry, you know, but, but it's come out. And, I mean, last week it just, it was on CNN. It was on, you know, Christianity Today wrote the article. It, a lot of people were out with it because many sources had put out this. I guess they found stuff on pictures on his phone, on his computer. I don't know. It's just, so that's it. So, I mean, do I know that I know that I know? Wouldn't stake my life on it, but this is what is being put out right now. And like I said, several, several witnesses are coming forward now because it's out, and they're saying, yeah, I was involved in that too. Any other questions? Stan? Just a comment. Uh, when I was a young believer way back in probably the late 70s, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, I took my brother to a congregational church, if I'm not mistaken, and the pastor had a Bible, and we had a Bible, and he opened it up, and we opened ours, and I look around, nobody else had a Bible. Yeah, I, lo- I like when someone walks into this church as a visitor, and they got a Bible and a notebook. I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> cool. You know? And I know a lot of you don't bring Bibles, because I put it up on the screen. Well, I'd still like you to bring them so you can check what's on the screen. You know, don't. You know, of course, we use our phones now. We don't need Bibles. We got our phones, got our, our tablets. That's right. My Bible goes everywhere. Not I can say okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what version? Okay. <laughs> I got all the versions. I have a question. Okay. If Google and some of the other uh, companies can put false stuff on the computer, what's to say that they would uh, distort the scripture? Well, they could distort. I mean, they, you know, they're lying to us through their teeth. I mean, you know, our government lies like crazy. You know, our government's allowed to lie, though. Those in Congress, those in the Senate, are allowed to lie. There's no consequences for that. Which, how did we get that mess up? That they can lie to us and we don't, they're supposed to work for us. Yeah. 18th president. It's just, it's crazy. It really is. Someone here says, allegedly, he threatened to leave the ministry when confronted about it when he was still alive. He threatened to leave? <laughs> I would have given him the right foot of fellowship so fast, it wouldn't have been funny. You don't have to threaten to leave. You know, this is true. You're out of here, buddy. You're out of here. All right, someone, see, someone asked the question here. Are you teaching that only some are saved and chosen by God? Yes. Absolutely. And then the, the statement here is God desires all to be saved. Well, that's 2 Peter 3. Why don't you read it in context? You know, because in 2 Peter 3, he says he desires all to be saved. Who are they all? He's talking about the elect. If you go back in the context, he's desiring the elect. He's waiting for the elect to be saved. The scripture is so clear. Old covenant, new covenant, that God has chosen a people for himself. I don't see anybody having a problem in the Old Testament when God said, I choose Israel. And people say, wait a minute. What about the Canaanites, the Hittites? How come you didn't choose them? That's not fair, God. He chose Israel. 
And he said, Israel only have I known of all the nations on the earth. So, it's okay for God to choose nations, but not people. Yes, I mean, please, let's be clear about that right now. If you're not sure where I stand there, you haven't listened very long, obviously. But yes, God chooses people. I got, go to my Romans series and look at chapter 9, go to my Ephesians series and read chapter 1, uh, go to my John series and go through chapter 6, and that's just the beginning. I think another thing in that, that verse that people miss out on is before that he talks about all these different ranks of people, and then he says, and the word all can and usually is interpreted to mean all types of. He lists all these different ranks of people, and he says, but God that looks for all types of men to be saved. Right. It's not all men, it's not all without exception, it's all types. Because he lists right right above that list all the different types of people. He says he, he, he likes all these types of people. And if you look that word up, that's... I think you know, Jeff brings up a good point there. Many times when the Bible says all men, it doesn't mean every man. It's not all without exception, it's all without distinction. In other words, you know, in Timothy he talks about God wants to have kings and this, you know, all these different people saved. And especially you have to understand the Jewish culture. To the Jews, God was their God. It wasn't anybody else's God. So when it says all men, they're like, what? Gentiles are getting saved? And that's what all means. It's not all without exception. All without distinction. Jews and Greeks. God saves them all. So I hope I answered that question clearly. But yeah, I mean... All right, whoa. Okay, what am I doing wrong here? I gotta, we gotta put all of it. I don't know. I, I see that there's... Okay, one question here I'm looking at is way too long for me to even read right now. So you got to keep the questions concise because I don't want to stand up here and, you know, in silence. And All right. So okay. Yeah. Uh. An open letter from the International Board of Directors of RZIM on the investigation of Robbie. Okay. Right. They had allegations against him in August of 2020, and they hired a private um, firm, law firm, to investigate. And then they, so they're, they have investigated him. And it's, of course, it's all over the secular news stations. Right. They're loving this, I'm sure. Right, exactly. But Christianity Today also has something on it. Yeah, I read that's where I got my information from the article on Christianity Today. But as Kathy just stated, mm-hmm. the ministry had some inklings about this, so they hired a private firm to look into it. you can read it. their open letter on their... Yeah, and find out that, CIA you know, so there's plenty of evidence out there that this is true. Sad as it is, as sickening as it is, it's true. And uh, again, people without accountability, we're prone to... You know the song, yeah, the hymn, "Prone to Wander, Lord, I Feel It." Wow, there's yeah. there's power in that, and if you if you you know understood the power in that, it would I think it would make a difference. What are we doing? Thank you. Uh oh, am I being removed? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just wanted to let everybody know that.
Jeff is a co-elder and I'm somewhere in there, I don't know. But we meet weekly for accountability. And just wanted to tell you that we do hold him accountable and it is our purpose to do so forever. And uh, he holds us accountable too. So there is that accountability here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we have no massage problems. <laughs> and let me just say, it is my greatest joy to have that accountability. Mm-hmm. You know, I, when I when we discuss something and we make a decision, you know, people, that was a dumb decision. I didn't make it, it was the elder. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. That's a, that's a joy. That's, that, 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 that takes the burden off of things because it's like, you know, it's made by a group. It's not made by an individual. They were going to resign if we did. Yeah, and if it's wrong, then it's the group, you know. And I'll tell you, the way we like to function is we don't like, okay, the majority wants to go this way. We want to all go the same way because we really feel if the Spirit of God's in it, then we're going to all be in the same mindset, going the same direction. 